and welcome back to another live broadcast of the DD Geopolitics podcast. I am with my amazing as ever host, JM, and two men that literally need no introduction, geopolitical analysts and experts, Andre Martianov and Larry Johnson. Welcome back to the show. Thank you both for coming. How are you? Happy to be here. Thank you. And JM, you, how are you today? I know you're excited for this episode. Very much so. So let's get right into it. Um, the world is in chaos, <laughs> um, to put it mildly. Um, so we're just going to keep it to an analytical level <laughs> without emotions, hopefully. Um, but the, the Israel-Palestine, um, the naval deployment of the United States moving its carrier strike group and Greece uh, deploying one of their frigates. Um, what do you think is going on and, and does this... Obviously, it has the potential to escalate, but how far are we going to go? Larry, who do you want? Who do you want to start with? However, <laughs> you guys want. Okay. Uh, let me let me let me jump in first. For uh, it, it shows the United States has learned nothing from history. So the last time we put uh, a naval force off the coast there in the Mediterranean, uh, this time it was off the coast of Lebanon, just a little bit north of uh, Israel. Uh, and the United States decided to start firing on Hezbollah positions that were in the Bakal Valley. This was 1983. Uh, the uh, Hezbollah responded by blowing up the Marine barracks, killing around 250 Marines, and then uh, blew up the U.S. Embassy a few months later uh, in Beirut, killed another 17 Americans and another 51 other foreign nationals. So, and then the, the, they blew up the embassy again, the embassy annex in 1984. And what did Ronald Reagan do? Pulled out. They got out of there. Um, so you've got to ask yourself, what kind of capability does this force have? Well, they've got cruise missiles and they have fixed wing aircraft that can drop bombs. So their plan is they're going to bomb Palestinians. And unfortunately, the U.S. bombs are not laser directed. It will only hit combatants, they'll end up killing civilians, as has happened so often in the past. And all that's going to do is enrage the Arab and Muslim world. Arab and Muslim are not necessarily the same thing. And uh, frankly, what has transpired over the last year and a half as a result of the war in Ukraine is you see a unity now in the Arab Muslim world that we haven't seen for you know decades. So Saudi Arabia and Iran that were always at each other's throat, they're now, they've, they've unified, they've got diplomatic relations, they stopped the war in Yemen. Uh, and ditto in, in Syria, uh, Syria has been welcomed back into the Arab League. So this is a recipe for disaster. Uh, oh, okay. You're now, up. <laughs> it's your uh, well, uh, I, I totally agree with Larry, and we have to keep in mind also that, uh, and I've been talking about it for a couple of days now, that basically it's a godsend for the United States uh, right now because it allows to switch uh, the attention from the catastrophe for the armed forces of Ukraine and basically the uh, NATO forces uh, and means which are attached there in uh, Ukraine and that suddenly you have this what it would be called a just cause considering the 
very strong pro-Israeli uh, uh, lobby in the United States. So yeah, they're sending the uh, aircraft carrier, uh, you know, the uh, carrier battle group. It doesn't really change much as uh, uh, sending message to the other uh, Arab participants there. Obviously, we're talking about the Egypt. We talk about Syria. So and just to make sure that Israel is not attacked in any kind of force from some other sides. Other than that, uh, let me put it this way. I, uh, unlike very many people who think that it's all new paradigm, it's not new paradigm. There was a, obviously atrocity committed on both sides. And now we have the good old idea of Likud and Bibi Netanyahu to basically ethnically cleanse or just basically depopulate uh, as much as possible uh, Gaza Strip. That's uh, his idea. This is the clash of two uh, mythologies, two religions, and it's a, it's never ending story there, pretty much. You know, so yeah. and that's what we're observing. So we know that Israel. Um, for the most part, has aspirations beyond Gaza and the West Bank, um, definitely in the Golan Heights and um, possibly even southern Lebanon. But focusing on the Golan Heights, which is Syrian uh, land, what does this mean for Russia? Uh, with Russia, Russia has a decent state. Russia has good relations with both Israel and Syria with very active uh, evolutions in Syria. Uh, what does this mean for Russia? How do they navigate this sort of Golan Heights conflict, especially? Well, I think I think Russia is going to try to stay out of it to the extent that it can initially. Look, the, the way this should have been handled, uh, what Hamas did in attacking that rave dance was a war crime, pure and simple. There's no justification or excuse for it. Uh, Hamas killing Israeli soldiers, well, you know, that's why you got a uniform and wear a gun. You can fight back. But what should have happened at this point is to have China, Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt intervene to try to separate the fighters and to get this resolved peacefully. But there's there's no desire to do this peacefully. And so uh, I think Russia is going to be they're going to be watching because at the same time as all this is going on, uh, you've, you still have the, the illegal U.S. presence uh, in um, uh, Syria and uh, the small number of troops. And they're likely to come under the attack if the United States intervenes. And Russia's in a position where it can help or hurt. And Russia's got lots of options. I think, you know, watching Putin and listening to uh, Xi Jinping of China as well, you know they recognize this. This is this is damn dangerous. What's going on? This can escalate out of control, and they would like to try to keep it contained as much as possible. But but frankly, I think the war fever in the United States is it's as hot as 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 it is in Russia. I mean, as it is in Israel. Mm -hmm. For sure, it's actually quite out of control here. Um, and I want to. We can talk about that as well because we kind of started. Um, to feel a little bit of war fatigue when it came to Ukraine. Um, you know, we had <laughs> Andre's already laughing. But, uh, you know, we kind of saw split down our Congress. It threw our Congress into a little bit of chaos. Um, and immediately we see an attack on uh, Israel. 
by Hamas, and that uni unified the entire American population and media and Congress all at once. They are ready to go in. I have never seen anything like this. This is worse than after 9-11, 100%. They cannot wait. And the rhetoric being used here by our media and by the people is some of the most genocidal and dangerous rhetoric that I've ever heard. So kudos to Xi and Putin for allowing cooler heads to prevail because that is not even close to what's happening here. And it's pretty terrifying. Thoughts on what happens next, especially for United States? Does, does this, is this going to, is this going to drum up support again for Ukraine? Are they going to be able to kind of synergize these two conflicts or are they just going to kind of use Israel to hide Ukrainian funding <laughs> underneath those aid packages? Cause everybody's ready to aid Israel, all money to Israel, but no more to Ukraine. Well, um, the only thing which the corporate journalism in the United States is capable of, and I'm on record, is to sell the atrocity porn. That's the only thing they do. Yeah. Uh, many of them probably do actual mainstream porn in their spare time, which uh, I wouldn't be surprised. So, and uh, the point is that, uh, yeah, it's manipulation of the public opinion, but I have to agree with you, Sarah, that it's, and again, I'm on the record for the last few days, that it's a perfect way to hide Ukraine. Truth is, militarily speaking, the situation, however tragic, and then let's not uh, kind of discount the uh, human tragedy and uh, uh, victims of this conflagration and what essentially is just now coming down to well war uh, war crime and crime against humanity by uh, israel by just basically indiscriminately bombing the uh, uh, gaza strip but it is still in the military political terms it is a pipsqueak compared to what is happening in ukraine and then we have of course syria involvement on russia's part and then there is another major thing which nobody uh, notices uh, what Mr. Putin stated two days ago, that in the end, the only thing is Palestinian uh, state to resolve this conflict. And let me tell you, after Israel got involved into the uh, uh, special military operation on the opposite side, supporting Ukraine, that the, all this uh, Sahal and, you know, the Mossad operatives training those, you know, uh, uh, armed forces of Ukraine. I don't know what they can train them with. I mean, they are not even in the same league. But the point is, it's a perfect example of how to switch a switcheroo, you know, the switch focus. Do you see any uh, reports about Ukraine right now? Not a single, not a peep, you know? So this is no. perfect uh, screen. I mean, come on. Now, now, now they have to ramp up this, the fever pitch of the, as I already stated, atrocity porn, like the Hamas beheading those 40 babies or whatever, while actual babies, uh, probably on both sides, but there is obviously more on the Palestinian sides dying. Side dying. So there you go. Perfect. It's a, yeah. you remember Churchill? Never let the good crisis uh, go to waste. And this nice. is a perfect combination. It's just like, and especially now we know that uh, Congressman McCall confirmed what essentially, after briefing this morning, what essentially the Egyptians were saying all along. We warned them. Well, Bibi was one way or another, no matter how they failed or was it deliberate. 
Bibi and Likud wanted it. So it's just, you know what, let it happen. Perfect. You know, so there you go. Well, what do you think, Mr. Johnson? No, no, I, I agree with Andre. Uh, this, um, so so let's let's break out a couple of things. What we've seen. Let's go to Ukraine. What has developed over the last month and a half is they've they've talked about that Ukraine has shifted its tactics in the counteroffensive. That they're no longer going to use armored vehicles and tanks. Instead, they're inserting guys on foot in small units. That's that's the game changer. So the people who are talking about this, particularly the former military, are morons. What they're talking about, if, if you've never done it before, number one, the if you're carrying a fully automatic weapon that's using 7.62 by 51, uh, and you've got an ammo can full of that, that weighs about 40 pounds. So try carrying an ammo can 40 pounds in one hand. You've got a 10-pound rifle slung over your shoulder. Uh, you may have five or six magazines capable of holding 30 rounds each, so that, that adds to the weight. That's at least another six pounds of, of carry. And then, then you've got your water, unless you're going to you know, try to drink your own urine, I guess, So the, and a couple of gallons of water to keep you going for two days. You know, That's another 10 pounds. And then, so all of a sudden, you're asking guys who are carrying 90 pounds of weight to walk seven kilometers, to climb into a, a trench, and then try to dislodge a, 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 an entrenched defensive position that is held by Russians. And oh yeah, that 40 pounds of ammunition you have, once you start firing it, you go through it in about 20 minutes. Now, does that make any sense? And, and that's what, what we're seeing right now is the complete dismantling of the Ukrainian military, which is taking place, but particularly around Avdiivka. Now, so this conflict in uh, Israel, this war in Israel, it is a great distraction. We no longer have that Ukraine's running out. But understand, when it comes to the voting bloc in the U.S. Congress— the number of congressional members that get money from Jewish groups vice the number of congressional members that get money from Ukrainian groups, the Jews have it. And Ukraine <laughs> goes to the back of the line. They're, 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 they're forgotten. They might as well put Zelensky's picture on a milk carton. You know, he's going to be missing in action. Um, one of our audience members actually asked this question because you mentioned about um Bibi kind of wanting this. Do you think that Hamas had it in their calculation of the to possible total destruction of Gaza? Like, sort of making, being willing to sacrifice Gaza in order to unite the Arab world? Uh, I don't know, honestly. But uh, something tells me that they uh, they have miscalculated a bit, so to speak. But in the same time, when you do indeed uh, commit the, um, what they did initially, and again, there are all kinds of demagogues who, uh, especially pro-Palestinian demagogues, who start, oh, yeah, those settlers, you know, they are really not civilians. They, well, I don't know. You get into the house, which has like three children, a woman and a man, 
and then you take them together with their grandparents, you know, and take them away. Uh, it's not so much POW situation as much as taking hostages, which is a clear-cut terrorism, you know. So, mm -hmm. and terrorism is obviously the weapon of the week. Uh, when you obviously attack Tsahal, you know, the uh, uh, Israeli Defense Forces positions, absolutely, it's a legitimate military act. And But the point is that um, we have to wait and see, because at this stage, we do not even get the proper information about the scale, actual scale of victims. We know that many civilians, including children, die on the Palestinian side, which is inevitable. Their sector Gaza uh, Strip doesn't have their uh, any air defense. They don't have any weapons which uh, in any way could be counted as heavy weaponry. The only thing they have are pretty much infantry weapons, such as the maximum they have is Carnet uh, anti-tank uh, guided missile complex. It is deadly efficient, but that's about it, I would say. And of course, they have their Katyushas. You know, they basically, that's the only thing they can do. And it is indiscriminate. It has no guidance whatsoever. And so the only thing which is left for them is to bombard the civilian areas, you know, in Israel itself. So it's a bad situation. Let's put it this way. And um, so we have to wait and see until the real data and real information verified will begin uh, to pour in. For now, you cannot get anything out of the American corporate media because it is, I mean, hysteria. And uh, so, you know, we'll have to wait and see again, as I already stated. Yeah, this this has awakened a lot of the, what I call the, the Roosevelt-Pearl Harbor meme, the, the claim that Roosevelt allowed Pearl Harbor to happen so we could get into the war in Europe. Uh, I'm not a fan of Bibi Netanyahu. But I really find it, number one, let's just assume that, okay, yeah, Israel knew. Well, if you're talking about that knowledge, that means Mossad, that means Shin Bet, that means Unit 8200, which is the, their version of the National Security Agency. So you've got all these bureaucracies and all these people in the bureaucracies that know it. Plus, in, in Netanyahu's government, he's not got, he doesn't have a unified government. He had political opponents in there that helped. You know, the, yeah, they came into the coalition reluctantly, but they got they got something in exchange for it. They'd rat him out in a heartbeat if he did something like that. You know, so it, it, I, this was, I, I fully believe this was an intelligence failure, having worked with Israelis before. They, if you're looking for the most arrogant people in the world, Israeli military and intelligence officers are right in the top three. You know, they know it all. They, you can't tell them anything. You know, they, they've got, they're on top of it. And, you know, they got blindsided because this operation had been planned for quite some time. This, this was not Hamas just waking up some morning and saying, hey, instead of going for the paraglide out over the ocean, uh, let's uh, fly in and attack an Israeli military base. I mean, they, they penetrated the fence. They had fairly large formations of men moving towards there. They're carrying ammunition on foot. They had vehicles. They had motorcycles. This was planned. So Israel got caught off guard, but the, the, the problem it faces now is Netanyahu in his public comments is playing to the Israeli domestic political audience. We're going to go into the Gaza Strip and we're going to smash them. Well, you know, if Israel does what the Sixth Army under von Paulus did in Stalingrad, 
at the outset where they blow up all the buildings and they they really punish you know like uh, the Nazis punished those Soviets well here the, the Israelis going to punish those uh, Palestinians well you create rubble you create make it, it almost impossible for Israeli tanks to maneuver you create fighting positions that the Hamas fighters can use for to attack those tanks and destroy them and in fact Israel went through this a little bit in 2006 most of that fighting was out in the open but Hezbollah <laughs> had built positions and bunkers and trenches and they stopped Israel cold and that that was you know uh, out in the open once they get into urban combat Israel's going to be decimated in terms of troop losses and add to that it looks like Hezbollah has now gotten into the fray and it is starting to uh, infiltrate from the north and and from uh, uh, Syria which is on the uh, northeast side so I Israel rapidly could find itself in a position that, yeah, they've activated 300,000 uh, reservists. They're not trained. They're not trained and top-notch ready to go. Just, just because they're Israeli, it doesn't mean they got a Superman sign on their chest. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a very bloody conflict, and it's going to wind up with Palestinians and Israelis dead in horrific numbers. It'll approach what's going on with the Ukrainian side up in the, that war. Yeah, and where do you think that I, I actually posted this on my Twitter account? He said, "Where did this idea of the IDF being some sort of like collective elite force of like a couple hundred thousand, and then Mossad being like the utmost greatest intelligence agency in the world?" And I'm like, "We're just watching failure after failure." Where do you think that this propaganda kind of comes from? Is it from the Six-Day War? Is it just because we want to build up Israel to make them look like don't attack Israel? Uh, or is it just kind of wishful thinking? It's all mythology, which obviously comes from '67, uh, promoted by Israel itself. Of course, not understanding and what many, for example, Soviet military instructors pointed out both for 1967 and 73. Some of those military instructors I knew personally, what, that actually the Israel, which by the way, was fighting using Soviet combat manuals, what, they even had panfil of roll call. It's from the Great Patriotic War during, so it's it was, uh, Israel was fighting, especially in 1967 as the Soviet army, basically, because yeah, they had yeah. the huge number of the Soviet Jews, former cadre officers with the military academic background and service experience. So, yeah, they decimated Arabs, much of their, um, much of their armies being illiterate, culturally backward. And of course, it's not a mythology. It's a well-known fact that, yeah, you, the Namaz time comes they drop everything, you know, just and bow to, you know, towards Mecca, just right in the middle of the battlefield. So the fact is that they were fighting and the, the, demolishing the subpar, um, to put it mildly, very unqualified, uh, very backward armies, incapable at that time of true combined arms operations. And here you have those, you know, pretty much Soviet combat manuals, which are based around this. Of course, they mm -hmm. won it, and they started to basically, you know, promote this mythology that look how good we are. 
It is the same what has happened with the United States when it beat again the Saddam after, uh, you know, which is army also half illiterate pretty much. <laughs> and uh, basically without any functional air defense with the Air Force, which essentially basically ran away. So and uh, United States Army and coalition have half a year of prepositioning forces with impunity. As Mr. Klokotov, Lieutenant General uh, and former <clears throat> chief of the strategy department of the Academy of the General Staff of Russia wrote in 1992 after that, he said, you cannot use this war as standard for anything. It's anomaly. <laughs> and so there you go. They beat those uh, people who cannot fight combined arms operations and had a very low, uh, actually, uh, grades, for example, from Soviet military advisors. And so there you go. What do you do? You build mythology. You promote it as unheard of uh, victories, unheard of achievement. And while in the reality, it is not. And we saw everything come to a head essentially with the special military operation now, which we can see yourself that you have those uh, NATO generals looking at it with a jaw drop because that's how the real wars are fought. And even this one is in many respects, well, not anomaly, but it's a special case. And that's where it came from. And don't forget, especially in 1973, because the United States by that time was providing a bulk of the equipment for the uh, Israeli Defense Force. It was the matter of the prestige of the weapon systems, you know, and it's like, oh, look at our F-4 Phantoms, you know, or look at our this and that. So, and although even in uh, 1973, for example, the shock was when the Soviets provided uh, air defense systems to Egyptians. And uh, they dealt a huge damage to the uh, Israeli Air Force. But still, you know, when you have media in your pocket and you finance them, there you go. That's what you get. I just really love that our mythology of the Israeli Defense Forces is really just Russian propaganda in the end. It was all Soviet. <laughs> and it's so funny because, you know, I know people in the Russian Armed Forces, even... Um, like people have been who are doing their oblig obligatory service or, or on the enlisted side. And I know officers and their knowledge of military doctrine is pretty astounding. But I've served in the United States military and we don't learn any doctrine whatsoever. We don't learn that. So it's just a, it's really interesting that while they were kind of utilizing Soviets, they had this very strong and successful army. Well, I think um, oh, sorry yes, about that. Uh, I have to jump off this call for about 10 minutes, but I'm going to hand it over to, to JM. I'm going to appear on press TV for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then I will be right back. I have to go, guys. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> well, uh, the war in Ukraine is coming up as our Soviet armies, and I think that then bears in mind the next question, which is that um, we've seen a lot of uh, talk about combining aid and money, 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 but both of you have talked about, well, the U.S. can always print more money, but can it necessarily get more stuff? And in terms no. of the question of the stuff, does America have enough space in its heart for two major wars? No, because look, uh, I was a Fox News analyst in 2002, and I got fired from that job, uh, or Roger Ailes sent down orders not to have me go on air anymore because I said... In November 6th, I believe it was, 2002, 
I was asked about, should the United States, at the time we were fighting in Afghanistan, should we inv go into Iraq? And I said, the United States then, 17 years ago, was not in a position to fight a two-front war. We did not have that capability. And even then, when we we're fighting guys herding goats and chasing camels. So jump ahead to today. Absolutely not. We can't even keep Ukraine supplied with sufficient artillery rounds to, to counter uh, Russian strikes. And in fact, we went and raided supplies that we'd put in Israel, taking it from there. So it's not just that. The, the, the U.S. military across the board is not meeting recruiting goals. And they're not retaining the people in the service. I just had a chat this morning with a friend of mine whose son, a graduate of West Point, uh, and he is now stationed in, with European Command in Germany. We'll soon go to Romania and then to Poland. And uh, th this young man is uh, just a newly uh, minted captain. As soon as he finishes up his requirement, his service requirement, which is like another year, he's out. He's not staying. Why? because he's sick and tired of the woke mentality that uh, infects the U.S. military, worrying about pronouns and diversity, equity, and inclusion, not worrying about military capability. So you're, use, you're losing some really capable people because of that. And then on top of it, the United States has lost its industrial base. I just, I just came back from my 50th high school reunion in Independence, Missouri, which is in the Kansas City area. And I made a survey of all of my classmates at the time. Who did your dad work for? Only about 10% of the class had fathers who worked as in the service industry, either as lawyers or for city government or selling insurance. Only 10, 10%. 90% of the fathers of my classmates 50 years ago worked at uh, Sheffield Steel, Armco Steel, Union Wire and Rope, variety of names, Bendix Corporation, Alice Chalmers producing farm implements, uh, General Motors plant, Standard Oil, all manufacturing productive jobs. Those factories are all gone now. 50 years later, they're gone. They don't exist. So it's not like the United States can turn around flip a switch, and then all of a sudden uh, create jobs and, and tanks and planes and ammunition and artillery shells. We, we can't do it. So if, if, we actually, if, if we get into a shooting war, our stores will be exhausted within two weeks probably. Well, I'm not lieutenant colonel, actually, yeah. I beg your pardon. Um, uh, what do, but you are very articulate on the question of industrial warfare. What is uh, your opinion on if the United States has two wars and it's uh, is able to afford? Well, Larry eloquently actually stated the case here. And the only thing I can add, don't forget, there was a doctrine of two medium intensity conflicts uh, simultaneously about 25 years ago. Then it migrated towards one and a half medium intensity conflicts. And then now we have the uh, one medium intensity conflict and even that uh, uh, United States cannot fight. It's uh, as Larry correctly stated. I mean, look at the situation with the industries and it's worse than that. 
we are looking at the systemic collapse of the public education, including on the level of the uh, higher education in terms of STEM. And when you look at what happens in terms of R&D and military equipment, military technology, United States now still stuck is stuck in the 1990s. Operational concepts, everything, you know, including the military hardware, which is attached or uh, basically tailored to, to it. And it's not good. And we already saw it. I mean, it's just uh, Russians already have the whole, you know, uh, how to put it, the number of jokes about all those American uh, equipment. Uh, and now we have Mr. Austin today stating that yeah we're gonna give f-16 but no earlier than next spring sure you know it makes no difference i mean because the whole system the toe the table of organization and equipment is not tailored for fighting the real combined arms operation of scale and general kawali the supreme commander of the uh, uh nato forces in europe he was pretty eloquent but he stated in January this year that scale, 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 the United States is not capable of fighting the war of this scale, industrially or operationally. So, and I did just simple as that. I guess it seems reductive, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I have to plan the question given the way things are going. Uh, could the United States sustain Ukraine and Israel and if something terrible were to happen, a possible uh, conflict in um, the far in the Far East, so yeah. in the general China area, could it do that? No, no, absolutely not. And don't yeah. forget, the United States doesn't fight really the war in Ukraine. It merely supplies things for the proxy, and some uh, obviously some cadre people are attached there. But no, as I already stated, I'm on record for many years. United States and the combined NATO force cannot find combined arms conventional conflict in Eastern Europe and win it. It will sustain catastrophic losses. We have this uh, article from the U.S. Uh, Army War College Parameters, a very respectable, actually, publication, uh, which Russians also read. You say... you have the article about this from Tradoc people. It is training and doctrinal command. You can download it and read it, you know, online. And we're talking about, as they say, if to imagine that United States will be allowed to aggregate forces to preposition them and fight Russians in Ukraine, uh, United States uh, alone will sustain 3,600 casualties a day. So uh, we're looking at, yeah, out of those 3,600, probably the most of it will be killed, TIAs. Uh, can the United States as a nation sustain, let's say, 100,000 killed uh, basically a month? I doubt it. We will have no, the revolution no. here. Right. So, so there you go. Yep. So, and there you go. And this is very simple. And they begin to understand this. They begin to grasp it. And the other thing which United States never, never in its military history encountered, it's the fact that Russia has full capability. In fact, it's the best in the world of striking to the operational and strategic depth. What it means that if you have the army or core headquarters, which in itself is the military unit formation on its own, you cannot do anything. 
because you will be detected, the targeting will be developed, and you will have Mr. Kinjal or Mr. Onyx visiting immediately. You know, so you you have to understand this is a completely different war. United States never put anything like this, with the exception of the World War II, when it had more or less granted it was the shadow of the former Wehrmacht, but it still was a force to be reckoned with. So, and other than that, I mean. Come on. Now, even in the same article which you pointed out, there is a very funny idea from Tradoc people that, oh, how about we, because we know we're going to be hit, how about we move the whole uh, command and control structure and make it mobile? Well, good luck doing this. Can you imagine what it is? Again, headquarters of the army or the corps. It's, I mean, there's hundreds upon hundreds of people and staff and, you know, support. Uh, so what do, you, what do you have? You have, again, the huge caravan, so to speak, of the vehicles and everything. So which emits number of the, you know, all kinds of in the electromagnetic spectrum. Well, good luck trying to hide that. So there you go. Yeah. And what you have, you need to have a really serious air defense like Russians do. To mitigate this issue, because Russians obviously not gonna go mobile with their headquarters, but the United States doesn't have it. Patriot is a bunk, basically. It's a, yeah, it's myth. It's there you go. Oh, but you weren't impressed by the MLRS uh, barrage of brovery, sir? Yeah, <laughs> I, I wasn't impressed, honestly. I Listen, I wrote about it for so many times, for so many, for many years, ten years almost, and that yeah, there are uh, basically very uh, clear criteria, uh, uh, tactical, tactical, technical, and operational on how your weapon and hardware systems perform, and this is the first real modern war, a real no, not right. Gulf War. Gulf War is basically Turkish. You get the guys, you know, for half a year, you know, get them together. Then you begin to use, uh, it's like fighting there. Yeah, it's like fighting the Native Americans, Indians, you know, there with the uh, bow and arrows and you have their basically, you know, their machine guns. Good luck for them, to them. Uh, I wanted to ask a question uh, mostly directed to you, Mr. Johnson, which is that thinking about this war, I've read some say that uh, the United, we think of the United States as we always do with World War II, our finest hour, but perhaps in terms of uh, the United States' strike capability and sustainment capability, is it perhaps more comparable to Imperial Japan? I'm not even sure that's a fair comparison because uh, at least the Japanese had a national strategy. Uh, I think they had a national plan. We don't have a national strategy and plan. So all of, as Andre has, you know, he's written about it eloquently. His his first, um, you know, important book was that uh, Losing Military Supremacy, uh, published uh, six years ago. And it, people should go get it and read it. It's online. And I don't get a kickback either. So, you know, encourage folks. Oh, to you will. You will. The bottle <laughs> of good scotch is, I'll, I'll make okay. sure. <laughs> but. But what he points out is that the the decision to procure weapons in the United States is really made based upon political considerations, not what our military doctrine, not what's needed to actually work in, in a possible battle. So I've always, you know, I've used the line from Donald Trump. Donald Trump says America has got the best military in the world. Well, I said, no, we don't. We got the most expensive 
military in the world. Uh, I've described it as it's the equivalent of a Lamborghini that doesn't have any tires. So it looks good on the showroom, but you can't really take it out and drive it for any length of time. Uh, you know, like the F-35, this Joint Striker uh, fighters, uh, it is it, 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 50% of it's down. It's not a reliable aircraft. Uh, I've, I've heard from a friend who's talked to a very knowledgeable source that the, even this Naval Task Force, the Gerald Ford, the carrier strike group that's being deployed off the coast of Israel, that they're not, uh, they've got, they're not fully armed and they're undermanned on board, on board these ships. The, you know, the, they're not up to full speed. So the, the United States has really created a problem that uh, it, it thinks, it, it, we've got magical thinking among the politicians, like with Lindsey Graham. Even though he's in the Air Force as a lawyer, as a JAG, uh, he talks about hitting Iran, like, oh, we can just do that in a heartbeat. Well, I actually used to be involved with scripting terrorism exercises, and I was involved with scripting one that in, that uh, dealt with Iran and dealt with attacking particular targets in Iran. And odds of getting in, slim. Odds of getting out, zero. And then all you do is you've... Uh, You've really created a causeless belly that Iran is in much stronger position to go after the United States than we are to go after them. Because this ability to project force, it means you you just, we don't have hypersonic missiles here in the United States. Russia's got them. China's have has them. We don't. Uh, these carriers are not, they don't have magical ability to sell halfway around the world in two days. And then to move the supplies required to sustain ground troops, a whole nother issue. So the, the United States has lived with this delusion of an expeditionary military force over the last really 40 years. And, it, and, and it's accomplished nothing. It's not made the world safer. It's not made the United States more secure. And it's not reduced the level of violence in the world. But what it does do is as long as you can justify an enemy out there, then the Congress can appropriate more money that goes into the defense industry, which produces jobs, which produces political contributions to the members of Congress. So it becomes a self-licking ice cream cone, a circular, uh, circle effort, and doesn't have anything to do with the practical uh, reality of having to fight an industrial war. Well, we've seen Ukraine become a bit more active in terms of at least uh, Russian probing operations. But I was very interested to see that both the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Brown, and also uh, the Secretary General of NATO state that Russia has gotten weaker. What sort of... <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh my God. Um, They're the, the replacing Zelensky for the comedy hour? I'm not entirely certain, and you can probably hear that hesitancy in my voice, but I wanted to still nonetheless say that because senior officials are saying this when they're saying that Ukraine is going to bravely continue the counteroffensive exactly as you described, Mr. Johnson, to perhaps offer a different perspective on the current state of the two combatants compared to the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Brown, and uh, Mr. Stoltenberg. Well, is that Andre take that 
Yeah, Stoltenberg is not credible figure, especially in military affairs. He is basically a classic European political, uh, badly educated. He has the degree in finances, I believe. Yeah, I understand he ran Norway, which is great, which is about one borough of Moscow size in terms of population. So, but the point is, uh, United States doesn't know Russia. It never did. Most of it, what is known uh, in the United States about Russia, her economy is primarily the product of the mythology of the Russian so-called fifth column, which provides constant stream of the aggrandizing uh, uh, statements about United States and American political class. And especially when it falls on the primarily incompetent ears uh, of the American lawmakers or so-called cultural elite, when, when, which begins to speak about uh, those things with uh, having no military intelligence background whatsoever. So that's what you get. And the same goes to a certain degree to Pentagon. We are looking at the precipitous decline of the professionalism and education of the American officers. Is including top brass, and top brass we know in the United States, you have to be basically sucking it up, you know. It's not uncommon, make no mistake, there are certain things which exist, existed similar, albeit not on that level, in, for example, Soviet Union. I doubt it's today in Russia. But the point is, uh, I always give the example for people who do not understand what we are talking about. Russia can produce, no, actually not can, Russia is producing right now 1,600 main, uh, modern main battle tanks a year. A year. United States and all NATO nations combined can barely produce 100 plus, not to speak uh, about the fact that actually the United States cannot produce main battle tanks whatsoever. Right. What it has, it has some remaining kits from which it makes those Abrams and they do <clears throat> actually some um, modifications on that. You go and look at the hardware technology, as I already stated, uh, you know, there are many fanboys out there who do all those technology things, you know, the, uh, the point is uh, Russia outproduces United States militarily order of magnitude. And now you, what you have, not only in terms of ammunition, we're talking about the quality. United States, with all its resources, still cannot develop working hypersonic weapons. Russia deploys the variety of them, not only in the front lines. It, she uses them to a devastating effect. So uh, remember 2018 when Mr. Putin was talking when his uh, uh, address to Federal Assembly, when he revealed those six new weapons? First, there was a, ah, yeah, it's all cartoons, CGI. Then they start started calling, the, calling them the uh, basically boutique weapons. Well, guess what? All of them are now in the uh, either already deployed or in initial operational capability. And that's the thing which many people do not understand. For example, Colonel Wilkerson, for all my deepest respect to him, he doesn't understand what it means to produce modern combat aircraft. It requires the industry, which only, I would say, two countries have. I'm not talking about China. China still cannot produce world-class combat aircraft unless it is a copy of something. They don't have engines. You have only two countries who completely out of its own resources can develop, research, you know, provide all necessary parts and produce modern combat aircraft. 
flying on completely on its en own engine, own avionics, own weapon systems, and things like that. This is United States and Russia. And then, of course, we talk about other things. And again, as I already stated, most of those people, like uh, in Pentagon, some of them do that, but many of those American politicians have to be uh, given a tour of Washington, D.C. and New York, and then flown into the Saint, into St. Petersburg, Moscow, Kazan, Sochi, and things like that. And uh, they will experience a cultural shock. They don't even understand how ridiculous they look when they talk about Russia as a backwater. So it's mm -hmm. an extremely modern, highly developed state with, by the way, one of the best educations in the world. Yeah, and let me let me just add to that that this notion that Russia is getting weaker. So let's break it out. They're they're not militarily weaker. They've added the troops and trained troops. And they've had the luxury of time to train them. They don't have to scoop them up and force them into the back of a van and then throw them to the front lines. And then, as Andre noted correctly, the defense industry, which was a little moribund. I mean, it was it was active a year and a half ago, but not like it is now. It's cranking on all, you know, 12 cylinders and uh, operating. 12. Uh, the only problem it has is finding trained workers. And they're trying to, I think, address that by maybe bringing in some North Koreans and others uh, to, to help man, man the plants. So, you know, on, on the military front, they've gotten stronger, not weaker. Uh, and by conversely, they have attrited the Ukrainian army to levels, you know, I, people don't understand the loss of life. It looks like Ukraine at this point has lost over 500,000 killed in action. And I pointed out that in all of World War II, fighting in the Pacific and in Europe and in Africa, uh, lost 472,000, 475. So the United States in four, year, four and a half years of war in World War II didn't even lose as many men as Ukraine has. Sim similar for Britain. Britain lost 345,000. And yet they keep claiming that Russia has lost that many or more. But it's, it's, it's real easy to disprove. It's on social media. If, the, if that number of Russian casualties are coming home, there's no way Vladimir Putin and the, and the Russian intelligence services do not have the ability to suppress social media from reporting on funerals and graveyards that are being filled with bodies. And you're not seeing that in Russia, but you are seeing that in Ukraine. On the diplomatic front, instead of isolating Russia, making it a pariah, Russia's diplomatic presence in the world has grown stronger. People are lining up to join BRICS. They're not lining up to join the G20 or the G7. And so on the diplomatic front, Russia's uh, emerging with greater power than it did at the start of the special military operation. And economically, it's doing well. And politically at home, Putin's not under a great uh, significant attack. So this notion that they're getting weaker is just like, okay, where's the beef? Show us. They can't. Well, I just returned from Russia. And again, I didn't just visit uh, regular places like St. Petersburg or Moscow, which uh, basically make any other city in the world look kind of, you know, tame in comparison. I travel, you know, I travel to villages and things like that. 
life is not too bad, you know, to put it mildly. Of course, there are some, for example, there is some very moderate inflation, but overwhelming majority of people, basically, generally, they are, you know, very well settled. And yeah, Vladimir Putin has no reasons uh, to worry about his position. I think because we're coming up to the end of the hour, I'd like to ask you both about a rather curious recent development. Now, one that I'm sure you both know about, but it's nonetheless curious for this development. So as you both know, Ukraine has tried a few times last year to take the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Uh, On 9 October, so just two days ago, Mr. Budanov of Ukraine's military intelligence for the first time, admitted that they had tried on three separate occasions to assault the power plant, rather than persisting with this line that Russia was shelling a place where its own highly trained counterterrorism troops were. But nonetheless, it's rather interesting, I think, that he dropped that pretense and just admitted that they'd done it. Why do you think he has done that, perhaps? I mean, it's difficult to see... uh really his motives probably there are some other than the you know slip of the tongue so but it's known fact for example uh in russia what is going on there he was doing this for primarily western audiences and uh it's probably there uh, well there is a, some situa- situation in there inside the government of ukraine or whatever is left of it and who knows what uh, uh, basically those rats who try to leave the ship basically are yeah. trying to accomplish at this stage. So I don't know. But yeah, it's not a secret really. But again, uh, Western corporate media, they don't report anything truthful about that war. So Yeah, I, yeah I, think, I think he's just coming to grips with the fact that Ukraine's lost. And so he's trying, uh, you know, he's having a moment of candor. Uh, trying to save his own skin, yeah. as opposed to say, oh, yeah, I, you know, I count on me to always be straightforward. Uh, you know, people don't understand the peril that Ukraine is in right now. They don't have the financial ability to sustain their operations beyond probably two or three weeks without Western aid. And the United States and Europe now are increasingly distracted, paying focused on Israel not Ukraine. Ukraine's an afterthought. And in fact, they're writing it off. Ukraine has nothing to show for all of that, you know, billions of dollars pulled that, poured down that rat hole. Uh, so, uh, and they don't have the troop strength. They've been, they've decimated their trained forces. And they, the only place they could go for training would be Europe. And Europe right now, again, is preoccupied with Israel, not preoccupied with Ukraine. Uh, the only the only country I've seen that's actually made some gesture in the last couple of days is Germany, saying, "Oh yeah, I'll send some more equipment." But you know, send equipment, great. Who's going to use it? Who's going to ro- drive it? Who's going to operate it? That, that means you got some trained people, and where are they going to get them? So uh, I, I think this kind of comment by Budenov is just reflective of uh, they're starting to sober up. Uh, the only one who's not sober in this is the cokehead Zelensky. He is. Uh, you know, and and this is not just a scurrilous rumor. I, I've heard it from solid sources that, uh, you know, he he is he's using a lot of cocaine. Yeah, he looks like them. He um, uh, 
it's not it was quite telling when today he was pictured in Brussels next to Mr. Stoltenberg and Mr. Stoltenberg looked like the calm well put together one that's uh, rather a bad sign when next to Jens Stoltenberg you don't look like you're calm and look like you're about to break down and sob was he was he just a, just a question for you was Zelensky cuz i haven't seen the picture was he still wearing his Che Guevara outfit or did he uh, have yeah. black on he was had black on he was wearing his okay. black jumper yeah, so he's going. He's going for the Johnny Cash look. <laughs> uh, well, we have uh, come up towards the end of the hour. Uh, sorry that you got stuck with me. There, up, oh, she just I... got back. <laughs> I miss. I'm sure I missed an amazing show. Uh, it's a, we were it's quite right. entertaining. Were you? You guys held it down oh, for me. I, I knew. You, I knew you would. I knew you would. <laughs> They most certainly didn't. Because these two gentlemen are so entertaining, could you both uh, tell each other first, uh, Mr. Martianov and then Mr. Johnson, where people can find you so that they can uh, keep in touch and uh, learn a bit more about our world? Larry, you go right ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I'm at, I'm at sonar21.com is my blog. I'm also on Substack at uh, Larry C. Johnson. Uh, I uh, have my blog, which is at smoothiex12 at blogspot.com. It has nothing to do with anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and uh, yeah, you don't want me being on only fans or whatever fans only. It's gonna crush the industry. So no, no. It's um my the name of my blog is a reminiscence of the future, and uh, I have the same smoothiex12 uh, channel on um. On YouTube, so there you go. Or you can. I have a rather unique name for uh, the Anglo-Saxon world. Just dial in Andre Martianov, and it's probably going to get you. Well, you do. You do know Andre that we're we're actually neighbors. So oh, really? Yeah, we're actually neighbors. So I may come around and make you take me out for Cheberek or, or two. So uh, where are you? Right I'm, in, now? I'm over in the islands, so I'm a bit west from you. Oh, okay. Okay. So you are okay. Vashon or no, not Vashon, probably. Would be. Would be. Oh, you may not know. You are much closer to me than you may think. So, oh. yeah. I, yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I'll, I'll get you a chiburek if you want to. So, yeah. It's the fountains of cholesterol and it's extremely unhealthy. <laughs> That's why it's so good. That's why it's uh. so good. Well, thank you both for coming. I hope that we can do this again since I had to miss like half of it. But tomorrow, join us for our appearance at the UN sidelines, please. And until next time, this has been another amazing episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. Thank you all. <laughs>